Oh, it's awesome to, uh, to be together. Uh, it's just, it's weird that there's like three entire rows that are totally empty right here. So uh, I haven't been feeling well this weekend and I was sitting there and I was like, maybe everybody knows that I haven't been feeling well. Um, <laughs> uh, typically when we come together, I mean, the word of God is what we need. I mean, that is the message that we need for our lives is to hear from our God uh, for the uh, word of God is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, teaching us just how to live. Um, so when we typically preach on Sundays, we're going through books of the Bible, like verse by verse. And so we're over 12 weeks in the book of Ephesians. And then we'll do about four more weeks starting in January. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, we'll be in Ephesians 5 and 6, some of the most famous passages in Ephesians on marriage and the armor of God and stuff like that. Um, but we're, so I, I say that to say that's not what we're doing today. Um, and so we will be, uh, Colossians 2 will be, uh, will be a passage that we're in. We'll be in a passage in Matthew. But instead of preaching kind of verse by verse through the Bible, I'm actually going to preach on a person who formed their life on the Bible. And so we're going to walk through a person who built their life on what has been revealed to us in Scripture and uh, has been built on, um, on his view of Jesus. Um, and there's a lot of kind of competing stories about this person. And Netflix actually released their stats that um, there's been kind of like a retelling of his life and how he came to be. And it's been watched 30 million times over the last month. I don't know if anybody saw Claws or watched the Claws Netflix uh, show, but so I'm going to preach on Santa Claus today, okay? Um, and so uh, we're going to look at like who this guy is, and I watched Claws, and it was, it was entertaining. Um, it's kind of the idea is that there was already this toy maker that lived out in the woods, and then uh, this um, guy who kind of was a part of the mail service, but was kind of like... Um, was sent away, basically. And then um, it kind of was like when they met, this guy became Santa Claus. And so, uh, so today, though, is to look at who is this guy, what do we know about his life, and, um, and what can actually that do for our lives? What can that do for our lives, looking at somebody like Santa Claus? So just kind of for namesake, Santa Claus, when we say that, we're speaking Dutch. Because Dutch, Santa Claus is the Dutch form of Saint Nicholas. So Saint Nicholas is just Santa Claus in, in Dutch. And so this is who we're talking about, Saint Nicholas. And uh, we've seen in Ephesians that people are called saints in Ephesians when they put their trust in Jesus. And so uh, so. Jesus considers everyone a saint when they have actually uh, been all in and given their lives to Jesus. So approaching, I approach a little with Santa Claus, with St. Nicholas, I kind of approach his life, first of all, by saying there's a lot of fairy tale type things that have been attached to his life. So what I'm going to try and do is kind of do this <laughs> through it and try and get to like, here are the facts. And I think the facts will be 
very encouraging to each of us. So here's a fact. What if uh, I had written this down without knowing that uh, your whole family would be here? Um, what if 150 years from now, we come back to Collins Maxwell and find out that a bunch of kids are named Gilbert Schrock? Okay? I mean, Gilbert's just a fantastic human being. So, um, so but 150 years from now, so not right now, but 150 years from now, we come back to Collins Maxwell and a bunch of kids are named Gilbert Truck. In addition to that, several people, once they become church leaders, change their name to Gilbert Truck. In addition to that, the biggest church being constructed in the entire country is being named the Church of Gilbert Schrock, which that could feel creepy, but when you ask the people why they're doing that, they would say, well, because of his life, and that's what, the way that that person followed Jesus is the way we hope that this church would be full of people following Jesus like that. So, and all this is happening, though, 150 years from now. There's a lot of staying power there, right? Most of us, no one will remember us 150 years from now. So for that to be true, which can be depressing or it can be kind of freeing that we can just be ourselves. Um, but you would have to honestly say something gigantic happened. Something huge happened. Like something that we couldn't even anticipate would happen for so many people to take that name, right? And this is what we see happen. 150 years after St. Nicholas lived, um, kids are being named Nicholas, like they can tell through the records that were being kept around that time. This is in the third century. Kids are being named Nicholas. Four of the highest church leaders of the world change their names to Nicholas when they get placed in that position. The largest church of that day in the fourth century is being called Church of St. Nicholas. Something huge happens. So let's kind of dive into the beginning. Who is Nicholas? Um, his parents actually came to Jesus through a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul, which is crazy, in Myra, Turkey. M-Y-R-A, Turkey, Mira, Turkey. Um, I think it's called Demre, Turkey now. They renamed it in 2005. Um, but uh, his parents, Santa's parents, Santa's parents are Epiphanius and Nona. They desired to have kids, but they were unable to for many years. And uh, as many stories are, it seemed that the, the moment had passed. The 11th hour had come and gone, and still they weren't able to have a, have, have a child. And then they finally get pregnant, and it's Nicholas. Uh, we believe he was born in the 270s A.D., born in 270s A.D., in uh, Mira, Turkey. Tragically, a plague swept through Turkey at the end of the third century, and both of Nicholas's parents die in the plague. So what will happen to this orphan boy in the third century? Around this time, Nicholas's parents, the, around the time that they die, the head pastor of the church in Mira, Turkey, he dies of the plague as well. So this orphan boy, um, his parents die in the plague, and the head pastor in Mira, Turkey, of this large church dies in the plague as well. So a group of leaders, church leaders, meet to decide who's going to replace our pastor. 
After days of meeting, they basically feel like the shoes are too big to fill. That was kind of there. They were like, man, our pastor loved Jesus. He loved us well. Um, none of, like, you want it? You want it? Nope, 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 nope. They just had no clearness of, like, who should replace him. And so the story that is told that seems to be um, well documented is that the leader of the committee has a dream. Just has a dream at night. And his dream, you know where this is going. In the dream, he is told, go to the church early the next morning, and the first person who answers to the name Nicholas should be the next head of the church of Mira, Turkey. So you guessed it, at the same time, this little boy is having a dream that says, you should go to the church tomorrow morning. So he wakes up early, goes to the church, uh, the two people meet, he says his name's Nicholas, and the guy's like, you're our new pastor! He turns around and runs. <laughs> like, literally, they actually had to chase him down and like bring him back because he was so freaked out. Um, and naturally, everybody is skeptical. Like, the, you gotta be kidding me. This is this is like the worst idea ever for us to have this little boy as the leader of our church. Um, but they, they install him as the leader of the church and they are blown away that he is humble, he is honest, he's a lover of God, and he's a lover of people are the things that people said. Um, the church in Mira had significant funding it's at a kind of a crossroads. It's kind of across the Aegean Sea uh, from Athens, and, um, and it just had financial abilities. And so Nicholas was super generous with the money, um, and he was generous in a way that he would help with the poor, and he almost always did it in secret. So whenever he gave, he almost always gave in secret, and his church started to emulate this secret gift-giving that he had. Um, so while this is happening, like this would be the perfect place to say, and they all lived happily ever after. Um, but like it wouldn't make it for him to have that like 150 years after his life, people are naming everything after him. Um, one of the worst moments in the 2,000 year history of people walking with Jesus is about ready to happen. Um, and that is that there are two guys, so while Nicholas is now about 20 years old, he's been a, the pastor in Mira for quite some time now. While he is there, in Rome, two guys are having an argument, which is usually like, what's new, right? But what's new is that these two guys are the co-emperors of Rome at that time. Their names are Diocletian and Galerius. Diocletian and Galerius are having an argument, and what their argument is, is about why Rome is in steady decline. So the Roman Empire is no longer as winning every battle. You know, it will be totally dead by like the sixth century. This is the third century, and it is in decline for sure. Why don't they win battles like they used to? So both Diocletian and Galerius both think they know the answer. It's the Christians. It's the fault of the Christians. Now, why would you think it's the fault of the Christians? Well, the way that they think is they would call Christians atheists because Christians only believed in one God. 
and they believed in a whole pantheon of gods. So if Christians only believed in one God, I mean, they're pretty much like atheists, right? Well, so what they thought was that the gods themselves are so mad that there are now millions of Christians in the Roman Empire that the gods are like, nope, we're not going to give victories anymore because all those Christians. So what Diocletian and Galerius are arguing about is what we should do with the Christians in the Roman Empire. And here is the, imagine this, like, we, imagine putting your kids to bed at night and you don't know in a city in the capital, people are having an argument that could deeply affect your life. And what their argument was, was one of the emperors thought the way to be great Rome again is to kill every Christian. And at this time, there are millions of them. So that's one of the emperors, like that's his position is we should kill them all. And then the other one was like, well, that could be. I think, though, at the very least, we should confiscate all of their houses. They should no longer be school teachers. We shouldn't allow them to have any position of authority in any community and basically just like remove any chance of them making an influence in the community. We should do that for sure. And so they're having this argument about what should happen. And what they realize is, and it's hard for us to think of this because we don't grow up in like the Roman gods idea, but what they come to realize is we should just ask Apollo, the god Apollo. So Diocletian and Galerius are like, handshake, okay, we're going to just ask Apollo and see what Apollo wants us to do. So they travel to the city where supposedly there's a person, an oracle of Apollo, a person who speaks on behalf of the god Apollo. And they say, here's our argument. We have the capability to execute any plan here. Um, what should we do with these Christians? Should we kill them all or should we do something else? The oracle's response from Apollo is nonsensical. So it's like blue, banana peel, run, 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 four. It's like that. And they're like, oh my gosh, Apollo is so outraged. He can't even form a concise sentence. That's the way they interpret the Apollo's, the oracle. So on February 23rd, 303 AD, a decree is issued throughout the Roman Empire. Destroy every church that's been built in 300 years. Burn every Christian book. Dissolve every church in existence confiscate every house of every Christian, ban all Christians from public office, and kill anyone who resists. February 23rd, 303 AD. Nicholas could have fled, but he stays exactly where he is to shepherd his people. Nicholas is arrested, and the authorities try to get him to basically cough up the church list because they know Nicholas is the leader, but they don't know who all the parishioners are. And so they, they try to get Nicholas to give up the people so that they could confiscate their homes and everything. And Nicholas refuses to turn on the people. He's really wanting to shepherd them and lead them. So he refuses to give in to their demands. They try to get him to deny Jesus. He refuses to deny Jesus and get this. He is tortured for eight years. 
tortured mercilessly for eight years. They said many times he was tortured to the point of losing consciousness for eight years. This is some of the most, the Diocletian Galerius persecution is, is famous just as one of the worst worldwide persecutions of Christians that's ever existed. And um, after eight years, crazy enough, Galerius's wife gives her life to Jesus. Can you believe that? Galerius's wife gives her life to Jesus. Like, that sounds like something our God would do. And uh, other things happened in the persecution. One thing that people kind of realize is like when your neighbors have like full permission to like beat you, their arms just kind of get tired after a while. <laughs> and, and one of the things that they realized in the empire is that they were just kind of tired of just after eight years, like we're kind of done with this. <laughs> like we've kind of given them all that we can give them. And so a young man entered prison but they said that a man aged dramatically by torture, but with a deep resolve for his Jesus now walks out of prison. And even as Nicholas came back to, uh, to the church, that many of the church people didn't recognize who he was because of what those eight years had done to him. But he returns to his church to faithfully serve other people. And in his congregation, there's a single dad who was an entrepreneur in the community, and he has lost his business. And, uh, and it just, he, he went after it, and it just, he lost his business. And this was at a time where there weren't government programs, there weren't things that they could do. So like for his family, like starving to death was a real possibility. And this guy had three daughters, and all three of his daughters were kind of starting to approach the age of marriage. And just the way that that culture in Turkey was um, at that time, and even it's that way a little bit now today, is um, that if your daughter didn't have a dowry, an appropriate amount of money to go into the marriage with, there just was no chance of having a marriage. And so you had to have a certain amount of a dowry to do this. And this guy just, no matter how much the father wanted to protect his three daughters, they were more than likely going to have to live on the streets and sell themselves to survive, which is not what he wanted. Um, the dad prayed every day for God to make it possible for, to, for him to either find work enough to provide a dowry, but it just seemed nothing happened. The dad would, would lead his daughter and counsel her and brace the oldest daughter that she was going to have to, she couldn't stay there any longer, and it broke his heart. But then um, in the middle of the night, Nicholas, and, and the accounts are different, that it was either he dropped a bag of gold in the middle of the night, either into their window, or some accounts say down the chimney, he dropped the bag of gold so that when they woke up, they had the money that they needed for the dowry, and the, the, the daughter was able to avoid all the terrors that she was looking into, but they had no idea who it was. They just knew that somehow they woke up and there was gold down their chimney. Years later, the same story unfolded in the middle of the night. Sure enough, when it seemed like God wasn't going to come through with their second daughter, Nicholas secretly dropped a bag of gold into their home in the middle of the night. Uh, then uh, the third daughter, the dad was just blown away. And the story is that with this third daughter, um, he was like, we can't presume upon God. Like, yes, we're praying that something similar would happen, but, but 
he's done this two times, and this is amazing. Let, let's pray. We don't know what's going to happen. But the dad said, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm going to stay awake. I'm not sleeping tonight because this is like beyond the 11th hour. I'm not sleeping tonight. I'm just going to stay awake. And the dad was dozing off. And then all of a sudden he hears this bag of gold comes into the house. And he leaps out. The dad runs out the house and sees this guy running down the street. And so, uh, so the story is told that the dad ended up catching up to this guy in his 40s scarred body in the middle of the night running down the street and found out that it was Nicholas the whole time that had been doing this for the sake of his family. And uh, Nicholas made the man promise not to tell anybody what had happened until Nicholas had died. And, um, and the, I, the, what people think is that the, that the daughters knew. And it was those three daughters who ended up, after Nicholas died, telling the story. Um, and, uh, and I was just thinking for me and for each of us, like that's the type of person I want to be. To be covered in scars from a lifetime of being all in with Jesus, no matter the cost. Running down the street in the middle of the night because I want to fight for what's good and I want Jesus, not me, to get the glory. And if all this wasn't enough to make someone famous and well-known, um, his most significant contribution is actually still to come, um, which is crazy. And that's, uh, so through miraculous supernatural events, in 312 AD, so uh, 311 AD, 312 AD, another Roman emperor is sleeping. Crazy stuff happens when people sleep. <laughs> and this is all, I mean, Roman coinage, it's all connect. like, it, it, the archaeological record of all of this is just phenomenal. Uh, but Constantine is, a, is an, a general at the time. And if we think our presidential elections are a little rough, like, I mean, these people are actually, like, killing each other to see, like, you know, last man standing is your, you know, elected official, you know. And um, so Constantine is getting ready to go up against some of these other emperors. And they're getting ready to have a battle. And Constantine's force that he has assembled is far smaller than some of the other people who are trying to be the new emperor of Rome. And Constantine, the night before one of his first main battles... Um, he sees the symbol, and it's, it looks like an X with like a P, and in Greek, that's a chi and a rho. So it's, it's the letter, like it's kind of like the letter C-H and R, which are the first two letters of Christ. And he sees this chi rho, and then in his dream, it says, fight under this banner. And so Constantine puts the Cairo on every shield, on everything. And when Constantine goes into the battle that next day, he decimates the force. Okay, and you can even like look up, I think you can even buy like the coins that were minted at that time of Constantine. It has the Cairo on it, you know, it's crazy. And so what's, uh, no matter how you interpret any of those events, what Constantine believes is that Jesus allowed him to become the emperor of Rome. 
And so, so Nicholas goes eight years being tortured in prison. And then in 312 AD, the Edict of Milan is issued, which Constantine says it is totally legal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. I mean, it, it, the turnaround is crazy, and they started giving houses back to people and everything. So it's a gigantic swing from the persecutions of Galerius and Diocletian. It's awesome, yet something troubling is on the horizon. And that's, there's a mega church pastor, the pastor of this huge church in Alexandria, Egypt, and the pastor's name is Arius. And Arius is like, this Jesus thing is pretty awesome. I think I can take it up a notch. And I think if I take it up a notch, we're going to like blow the doors off of our church. And the, have you heard of the Trinity? This is like Arius's. So, you know, Christians have been talking about that the Bible teaches that we have one God and our one God exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was like, I think we can improve on that. He said, I think that's a little confusing. So what Arius did was just start saying, hey, Jesus is amazing. He's even so amazing that we could kind of call him God. But what Jesus is, is he's the most amazing creature that God ever made. So Jesus is the most amazing thing that the Father ever made. And so Arius like preaches that and people are like, yes, wow, like Trinity doesn't exist anymore. So much easier to think of. It's not confusing. It's not complex. I get it. Wow, we should all speak this, you know, and they start writing these songs. You can even look, they have songs that Arius wrote that were just like um, all these things about how the Trinity is... Uh, is, is not something that we should think about, how Jesus is the most amazing creature. And this was like starting to tear the church apart. Like millions of people are talking about this. Like before there was Netflix, this is what people were talking about in the fourth century. They were talking about, is Jesus the creator or is he a creature? That was like the huge question. Is Jesus the one who made you or was he made? And so um, what ended up happening was Constantine sent out this message to all of the leaders of leaders of churches and said, I will pay your way to Nicaea, to the city in Nicaea. I will pay your way here. Get here, stay here as long as you guys want. And then with the idea of coming up with saying, what did Jesus teach us? What does the Bible teach us? Is Jesus the creator or is he a creature? Okay, so that's the Council of Nicaea, one of the most uh, important moments in church history. Again, they come together uh, in 320 AD. Uh, just for reference, Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So like when you're looking into the eyes of Jesus, you're fully looking into the eyes of your God, the ancient of days. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, so I'll give a little bit. The Council of Nicaea is super fascinating. Or 325 AD, on May 20th, 
325 AD, 318 leaders of the church gathered at this place named Nicaea. And uh, there's a little, there's some like popular books that have been written recently where people are saying, oh, Constantine strong-armed these people to basically like create the Trinity at this meeting. And first of all, the idea that a Roman emperor could strong-arm any of these 318 people that were there is ridiculous. Like, you, you're not going to walk up to a guy like Nicholas and be like, hey, here's what you're going to write down you believe about Jesus. He's like, we're playing this game again, you know? Like, it's not up for grabs. I, I, you know, so the idea that Constantine, Constantine actually, the transcript show, played a huge, he basically was the host of the group. And, uh, and even to the point that Constantine, Constantine is quoted for pointing out at the beginning of the meeting that there are three notable leaders in attendance. And look how he says this. There are three pillars of the world here. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about three people? There are three pillars of the world here. Anthony in Egypt, Nicholas of Myra, and James in Assyria. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it crazy that Constantine called Santa Claus a pillar of the world in 325 A.D.? So something intense happens at this meeting. I love this. Arius is getting on the naughty list. So bad, man. Okay, so a monk, Damascenos, from Athens, Greece, writes a transcript of what these guys talked about. You can buy all this on Amazon and stuff. Um, Here's how he paints the scene. The emperor was sitting on his throne, flanked by 159 bishops to his left, 159 to his right. Arius was presenting his views... So Arius is presenting his case on why Jesus is a creature and not the creator. Arius was presenting his views with great vigor and detail. As St. Nicholas observed the scene, the bishops listened to Arius in complete silence and without interrupting this discourse. Outraged and prompted by his saintly vigor, Say that again. Outrage and prompted by his saintly vigor, Nicholas left his seat, walked up to Arius, faced him squarely, and slapped his face. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that crazy? That just in this room, he was like, You cannot speak about my Jesus that way. You cannot talk about him that way. I was tortured for eight years. The one who made me owns me. And it's my desire and my joy to follow him and for you to just be trying to knock him down so that you think it's, we don't want a God who we can easily put in a box. We want a God who, who blows our mind, who is an Everest that we even know that we may only get to base camp one, the side of glory, in understanding his greatness. And we should not pull him down. And uh, John Calvin said, if I am my Lord's dog, which is a weird way to think of it, but he's like, if someone comes at him, I have to bark, you know? And I love that this is like Nicholas's way of, of barking. And so, so interestingly, uh, so he slapped a bishop in the face, which was actually a huge crime that was committed in Turkey. And so Nicholas was thrown into prison again, 
And the, what was going to happen is uh, the law of that day was that if you slapped a bishop, that hand that you slapped him with had to be amputated. That was like the penalty is you had to cut that hand off. And so thankfully they didn't do that. Like they respected Nicholas so much and they were like, and when they voted, there were only two guys who voted that Jesus was a creature. And it was Arius and his buddy that he brought with him. Uh, then all the 316 other people are like, no, Jesus has always taught us, the church has always taught that when we worship our Jesus, we're worshiping our God who made us. And, um, and so, uh, so I think as we see like Santas all around and uh, we see little blow up Santas in the yard and stuff, I, I think for us, like we can just like redeem the cliche, like a cliche is just something that's so familiar, it's lost its significance around us and so I think like like even if it's a little blow-up Santa that you're driving by like just look at its hand and be like man that hand should have been cut off because of that guy's passion for Jesus you know I think like let his tough life with Jesus encourage our walk with Jesus you know like the Lord saw him safely home and he's going to see us safely home Um, I think let the ordinary red and white continually restore the extraordinary. So the red represents the blood of Jesus that washes even the worst sinner white as snow. It was, that's true in the 4th century, and thankfully it's true in the 21st century too, is that the red washes us white, and that's why we see the red and we see the white. And if you haven't believed in Jesus as your Savior, let the life of this man who went all in, who followed Jesus without turning back, inspire us to do the same, to follow Jesus without turning back, to give our life to him and to see what he does there. Matthew 10, 39 says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is that powerful? Matthew 10, 39 Whoever finds his life will lose it. If you're like, man, what I really want in life is just, I'm just going to try and find purpose. And I'm going to just try and find meaning. And I'm going to try and just find excitement. And it's like, if you just go looking for those things, you won't find it. You're going to find those things to be empty. But when you say, hey, we saw these baptisms. Just, it's weird. That felt like three weeks ago to me, but it was last week, I think, right? <laughs> um, just last week, you know, Jimmy and Crystal and Peyton were baptized, and for them to say, like, hey, I'm dying to my life. I'm dying to all that I once knew. I'm dying to the way I used to live. I'm going down into the grave with Jesus, but as Jesus rose up, I'm going to raise up, too, to walk in newness of life, as Romans 6 tells us. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The life of St. Nicholas became famous not because he was extraordinary, because his life was simply all in with an extraordinary God. Lord, I just ask that you would, um, through what can seem silly because he's such a caricature to us, Santa Claus, but I also think, Lord, that... um, when we approach a life as adults, as people who have lived some life, as we come around a life and recognize a person who was all in with you, and, uh, you, and, and the Lord, you know the relationship that you have with Nicholas, that you had with Nicholas, and he was just a normal guy 
that walked with you. Um, Lord, would you just do that work inside of us? Lord, that uh, maybe we have a caricature view of you. Maybe we have a caricature view of um, what it looks like to be a part of a church, Lord. And uh, from day one, we've said we don't want to play at church. We don't want to just come and leave as if we've been unchanged. But Lord, we actually want you to turn this cafeteria into a sanctuary of your presence. We don't ever want to, we don't ever want to be here and leave the same. Lord, because every single time we come together and Lord, um, and you are present with us, Lord, we, we want to be changed. And we know that that is the way you are, is you, you are a changing God. Lord, you pursue us. You're transforming us. You're desiring to make us look more like your son. And so, Lord, would, um, would just each of us just say, have your way, God. Have your way in us. Have your way through us. Thank you for the life of Nicholas. Thank you for lives that just didn't care about what was happening around them and also cared greatly about what was happening around them, that he had eyes to meet the deepest needs in his community. And Lord, would we be that way? Would we have a relationship with you where even if we're persecuted, we can't help but move towards you and move towards others, Lord, and help us have eyes in our community to truly make a difference and to truly alleviate suffering, Lord, and so that in a way, too, that you get the glory instead of us. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. One of the things that Jesus uh, left for us, he said, hey, I want you to do this as often as you do it, remembering me, and I'm going to do this with you at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But until I do it with you, you guys uh, commune with me through communion. So that, that's what we're doing is we're communing with him. And so when we take his, the bread, that's his body that was lived for us. When we take the wine, uh, the dark color is wine, the light color is juice, obey your conscience there. As we take that, that's his blood that washes us white as snow. And um, if you are not a follower of Jesus, this is just going to be Panera bread and it's going to be uh, wine and juice it, without meaning, really. And that's why I would say, man, you can take it, you can not take it, but instead take Jesus. The warnings that are given in Scripture about taking communion are towards people who are followers of Jesus um, and who are not following him, who are not currently walking with him. And the warning there is don't take this without repenting turning, repenting of your sins. And if you do come to commune with him, realize that he is a refining fire. And so hear those warnings of scripture too, that, uh, that as we take communion, there should be a trepidation that we are communing with the one who loves us and is good, but is also pursuing us for us to look like him. And so let's come, let's take communion. And then the way that, that we'll do it here today is just uh, feel free to just rip, rip the bread and it's, it's okay if you you get something you've got to chew on for a while. Um, the Lord didn't hold back himself, so feel free to rip the bread, uh, take uh, the wine, and then let's hold it together. Go back to our seats, hold it together, and then we'll take it together as family. So let's come, let's respond.